Welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that takes you inside the biggest deals at the biggest clubs in world football. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I'm joined by pod regulars Duncan Castles and Ian McGarry. This week, PSG are looking to bring Paul Pogba to Paris. Will Manchester United sell their midfield star? Liverpool seem to be the quintessential cup team. We explore who they can sign to turn them into Premier League champions. And Sam Allardyce looks to be in trouble at Everton and Wayne Rooney is also potentially on the move. We go inside the Goodison turmoil. Okay, well, the big news today is obviously the story that Duncan has broken on the Daily Record, which is that Paul Pogba is generating some interest. Yeah, the the story is that Paris Saint-Germain are trying to find out if Manchester United are serious about um, selling Paul Pogba. Um, Pogba's been offered around Europe's top clubs by his agent, Mino Raiola. This happened um, earlier in the season when when Pogba, Raiola and Mourinho came into conflict over Pogba's positioning and uh, duties within the team. Um, The story will also... um, broken the daily record and we talked about in detail on the transfer window podcast and that's kind of bubbled away through the season we had the we had the um, Pep Guardiola announcing uh, just on the eve of the derby that um, that Guardiola had been in touch not with him because he doesn't get on with him but with the the, the club uh, asking whether Manchester City would be interested in taking Paul Pogba Guardiola's done that with Real Madrid Started with Juventus. He's basically gone round the clubs in Europe. He felt feels have got the financial wherewithal to to cover a transfer fee, which would be obviously substantial, given that he cost Manchester United an, an initial 105 million euros, and wages, which are the highest at, at Manchester United. Um, Paris Saint Germain are interested. Um, they see him as fitting into that category of superstar players that recruited um, with Qatar's money in their uh, in their, their desire um, and intention to win the Champions League as quickly as possible. Um, they've tried to get the player before he went to um, Manchester United, were unable to do that. And they now have him being presented to them as a possibility by the agent. And they're trying to work out whether Manchester United would countenance selling a player who was the, the centrepiece of their um, rebuilding work under Jose Mourinho when he came in two years ago. Um, the suggestion is that Pogba would still be open to the move. Raiola definitely is. Um, whether Manchester United are prepared to sell, um, it doesn't look that way from what I'm hearing from my contacts. Um, but... It's a situation we should definitely pay attention to because I think we, we had a we had a chat about this like three or four weeks ago in the podcast and we suggested that if there was a way it could be manufactured as looking as though Pogba was forcing the move and wanted the move and the, the money was good enough um, that United could present it as um, having the cash to not only buy a replacement for Pogba but to strengthen others in the areas of the team then maybe 
the deal could be made to, to fly. And what, what's certainly the case is Paris Saint-Germain are trying to find out whether there is a possibility before getting involved in the the details of making a transfer deal happen, which is what modern clubs do these days. You find out if the player wants to come. You find out if the, uh, the other club are ready to sell. And then you, you put a lot of effort <coughs> those two conditions are met. I'd say in these situations, guys, um, and I'm not involved with Manchester and Paul Pogba on this, I have to say, um, but if a club um, says to me, we need a central midfielder, um, do you have options for us? And then I'll ask the question, well, who's leaving? Then they will give me that information, etc. so I know what the photo fit of the new midfielder they want is, uh, whether it's someone exactly the same or whether it's something a bit different with different skill sets and permutations to his um, the way he can play, etc. In case of Paul Pogba, he's quite unique. He, he does have the ability to score goals, to make goals. He's a very deft touch. He's very good at passing. His range of passing is very good. What he doesn't appear to have right now, and what Mourinho, I think, is his main complaint about Pogba, is he, he's not tactically disciplined enough to play in a Mourinho team. Uh, as effectively as Mourinho would like him to play. And that has led to the problems with the where, which is his best position and, you know, his playing time, etc., etc. But I genuinely believe Pogba, considering injury and um, suspension, has returned a pretty good season for Manchester United this season um, and has the ability and uh, definitely has the potential to to produce an even better season next season and then a better one the season after. What he needs to do is buckle down, um, listen to his coach and play the way the coach asks him to play and then that way he can become the, the player that his potential suggests. So the question I would ask with regards to Paris Saint-Germain's interest in Pogba is who would United replace Pogba with? Because at this moment in time I don't really see a player out there, certainly an obvious one who can come in and who has you know similar skill sets? Who has the um, physical attributes? Who has the understanding that Pogba has in order to um, replace Pogba? And then again, we also have to take into a, a, you know account that Mourinho prefers a team unit and not a team of stars. So if Mourinho has a master plan, which none of us is aware of yet, Duncan, you might be, um, where he's going to bring in a player who's got different. Um, attributes to Pogba in order to make the team more effective, then that's a different uh, scenario altogether. The other thing I float on this argument is, um, and this you know is a sort of different story altogether, but it fits in with Paris Saint-Germain's recruitment policy, is that I've heard in the last few days that um, Real Madrid have, have re- reignited their interest in Kylian Mbappe, who obviously is currently on loan at PSG, and there is a contract um, stipulation that he will be transferred for a serious amount of money um, when the season ends. But the Real Madrid have explored the legal possibilities of buying out that contract from Monaco and, and effectively hijacking Mbappe's transfer to PSG in order to take him to Real Madrid for more money, obviously, to Monaco. Now, if that is the case, and that's what's going on in the background, you can see why PSG would need to replace one of their Galacticos in Mbappe with another one in Pogba? I don't, 
be fascinating if Real Madrid can make a deal like that happen. It would be a you know a huge embarrassment for Qatar, uh, and I, I would imagine it would see them if it was to happen. It would see them replace their lawyers and their uh, negotiating teams immediately, so that something like that couldn't happen again. Because obviously the the loan deal was only loan with uh, with the obligatory purchase was only set up as a way to avoid um, financial fair play concerns, um, which are also a factor here, obviously, and, and that's probably the, the hardest part of uh, the Pogba deal for Paris Saint-Germain is not raising the money to do it. Qatar have got unlimited resources and they're prepared to throw unlimited resources at that team, very much like Abu Dhabi and Manchester City. Um, but they're limited by getting around UEFA regulations and the pressure that's been put on them by the other traditional money clubs in Europe over um, them taking Neymar uh, and Mbappe last summer, um, targets for all of those other clubs and uh, and, and pushing the, the prices of, of essentially every top player up uh, with the fees and the, the, the salaries they gave to them. Uh, Paris Saint-Germain are determined to hold on to Neymar, although Neymar has continues to push to be allowed to go to Real Madrid. Um, and I don't see any way that they would allow Mbappe to go voluntarily. Um, again, we've had stories that Manchester City are exploring Mbappe's situation um, in the hope that um, Paris might have to sell him because of uh, uh, the financial fair play um, punishments or tightening that UEFA are threatening. Um, that's true. City would like Mbappe. They tried to get him last summer, uh, were unable to. Um, they see him as the perfect fit to Guardiola's system, and, and you know, understandably, because for me, the best uh, young player in in world football at the moment, and, and the real kind of um, heir apparent to to Messi and Ronaldo when it comes to Ballon d'Ors in the future. Uh, but I think Mbappe will stay. I think. Ultimately, Neymar will be forced to stay, and I think Paris Saint-Germain are, are working on a way to further strengthen the squad as much as possible, because so they can land that that um, Champions League next season. I suspect, Duncan, there's a bit of mischief going on here. There always is with, with Real Madrid. <clears throat> From what I've heard, they've they've asked to see the contract that Monaco have with regards to selling Mbappe um, as part of the loan deal to find out if there are loopholes that can be exploited. Um, the notion legally that uh, Real could buy out the contract which Monaco currently have with uh, PSG over Mbappe is not unusual. That's a possibility. I, I, I think you're right. They'd have, Qatar would be sacking their lawyers if they felt that their, this watertight deal they had would not be going through. But let's just take a step back and think about bigger picture. Real Madrid are obviously been in constant pursuit of Neymar, which PSG have constantly rebuffed. Um, they have flirted with the possibility of saying we'll send Bale or Ronaldo or Benzema or whoever, <clears throat> maybe two of those three to PSG, um, if we can get one of your star players in return. Neymar obviously being the, the, the golden goose, um, Mbappe being a very close second in terms of the prize. So I do think, there's, a, as I said, I think there's a little bit of um, uh, cage rattling going on from Real Madrid. Mm -hmm. They want to see what's possible and what's not. 
we know that Florentino Perez, the uh, Real Madrid president, is hell-bent on recruiting at least two, if not three, new high-profile Galactico players to the Real Madrid team, which um, has failed so miserably in La Liga this season. Um, it, bizarrely, or you know, if you know, for the rest of the, the world of football, winning the Champions League has become a little bit boring for Real Madrid. And Perez himself has said that La Liga must become a priority because they are losing, obviously, a lot of ground to Barcelona in terms of being champions in their own country. And it's becoming a little bit embarrassing for Real. So, as I said, a bit of sabre-rattling, a bit of cage-rattling um, going on between Real Madrid and PSG, but the the potential permutations for how that affects the summer's transfer uh, window are fascinating. Well, so, it- sorry, carry on, Duncan. It's an interesting to view that as part of a potential strategy to get Neymar out of PSG, whether um, they're trying to find some legal grounds in which they can threaten PSG over Mbappe and try and uh, change their stance over Neymar. What I would say is that Mbappe had agreed to join Real Madrid last summer. Um, uh, had given his word to Florentino Perez, all the details of the contract were... Um, were sorted out between the clubs and he then he and his father then reneged on that deal to go to Paris Saint-Germain um, for more money and that caused um, a great furore at, uh, at Real Madrid that, um, yeah, that this, this pair had acted in that way um, was considered extremely ungentlemanly on their part That was a repeat of what happened with Neymar as well well, Neymar was slightly different because um, Florentino Perez messed up the deal um, in sort of phone calls with with yes, uh, with his Neymar. father. Yeah, yeah, uh, offended him in a in a in a phone call um, over his attitude. I think at that time wasn't quite aware of how um, aggressive Barcelona were in trying to get the player. They, they thought they had the deal stitched up, and, and um, essentially Florentino Perez blew that deal. And um, yeah. The whole thing, of course, was a mess with lots of uh, hidden hidden payments and uh, ways of uh, keeping money away from Santos and you know years of court cases that have ensued. But what I, what I would say is that on the Mbappe point, Mbappe made the decision last summer to not go to Real Madrid because he preferred to go to Paris Saint-Germain. So for Real Madrid to actually be able to take him this summer, there would have to have been a change in stance on Kylian Mbappe's part that he didn't he doesn't like Paris Saint-Germain and he'd prefer to be in. Well, sure. I think one thing which has um, emerged as well, and I, I, this is more through Neymar's camp than, than Kylian Mbappe, who obviously is a France, France international player and is happy playing in the French League. That's where he's played all his career, is that Neymar has become quite quickly disillusioned with the lack of competition. Um, he plays, almost chooses his games for PSG. They, they win 4-1, 5-1. They effectively skate their way to a title and, and French Cup double, but then they fail in the Champions League. And so, you know, any player at Neymar's level is saying, well, can I really spend my career playing effectively 12 competitive games a season to try and win the Champions League, as opposed to 55, 60 competitive games a season, winning a very tough title, as well as competing in the Champions League. Now, as I said, I think the case may be different for Mbappe. He's younger, uh, he's grew up in the French League, therefore he still sees that as a prize worth winning. 
But I think in, in the case of Neymar, uh, there's certainly a degree of, um, let's just say, reflection on his decision to move to France and play for a club which effectively in a, in a one-team league. Um, hence, the consistent um, interest from, from Real Madrid, even from Barcelona to a certain extent, about taking him back to Spain um, and where Neymar sees you know, his competitive football future. Will he ever win the Ballon d'Or playing at PSG? Only if he wins the Champions League. Are they any closer to winning the Champions League uh, this season or next season? No, they're not. So um, I think that's the kind of um, problematic situation which Neymar certainly finds himself in right now. It's all very well getting paid 500 grand a week, but I think now he's looking at it and thinking, yeah, am I you know, throwing my career away here because where are my trophies coming from in the future? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree well with all of that. You know, I just I think the difference between Neymar and Mbappe is that Neymar is a spoiled kid, and yeah. his attitude to, to life and football, and and Mbappe, ironically, being a lot younger than him, is a is a is quite a mature individual. Okay, well, from the ups and downs and potential moves at Real Madrid to Liverpool, they are Champions League opponents. Guys, there's been a lot of conjecture about Liverpool and what they're going to have to do in the summer. I believe John Aldridge was in the one of the papers saying that they need to spend £200 million to become a team capable of challenging at the top end of the Premier League. Where do we feel, Duncan, that Liverpool have to strengthen and, and how do they do it to shake off this cup team tag that they have been given? Well, they definitely need to strengthen. Um, it's not hard to... Pick out the areas. It's you know goalkeeper need another centre back. They probably need to strengthen at full back. They definitely need to strengthen the field, which they, which they will do when they already have Naby Keita lined up to come in. Um, they for me they need at least one more forward, and they, they probably need a, and they definitely need a forward of a different type, i.e. a player who's comfortable playing against a you know a low block defence and doesn't need space to run into. Um, it's just, I, I hear all kinds of explanations of why Liverpool are so many points behind Manchester City in the, in the league this season, despite having reached the Champions League final, um, to do with not turning up on the day or they don't have a deep enough squad and they're, and they're fatigued. For me, it's very simple um, and you can see the pattern uh, in, the, in the, the games where they drop points. They drop points to teams who play, who sit back and don't give the forwards space to run into, um, play a, you know, a structured defence and, and try and hit them in the counter-attack, take a goal at a set piece. Whenever Liverpool come up against those teams, if they don't score first, they have real problems. And you've just got to look at West Bromwich Albion relegated from the Premier League Three, results, three games against Liverpool this season, drawn 2-1-1. Um, Manchester United both times played uh, a sensible strategy against them. A clean sheet at Anfield, beat them comfortably at Old Trafford. Um, last weekend, when, when Liverpool needed a result at Chelsea um, to get... Uh, to be more comfortable at the Champions League qualification for next season. And let, let, let's not forget that they're going down to the final week of the season with that in doubt. Um, Chelsea, Antonio Conte does the obvious thing, plays deep defence, lets Liverpool come to him, looks to score a goal, counter-attacker, set-piece, and, uh, and then has a pretty comfortable 
right to the end of the game. And any team can apply those tactics to against Liverpool. Um, they're not always going to work because Liverpool do have quality players. But the, the difference between a Liverpool side playing a team who, who set up the right way, a sensible way against them, and playing a team who leave them space to play into, even the best team in the league, Manchester City, is is really night and day. And that, for me, beyond any recruitment issues, is the biggest thing that Liverpool have to solve if they want to turn themselves from a team who can produce um, compelling, brilliant, exciting football on the day to a team who are genuine challengers for the title. And, they, you know, you, you, all you really do only have to look at the Premier League table to see how far away they are from being genuine um, challenges for the title the way they're playing at the moment. Duncan, who would be the ideal striker that you're talking about? The guy that can break down that low block? Are we talking about a Lewandowski type? Well, I think they they probably need two things. They need they would be better if they had a Lewandowski type or a Romelu Lukaku who you can use as a, as a reference striker. Um, use use who's happy with aerial balls, happy um, sitting in front of the defence, receiving the ball and, and allowing other players to play off them. But I actually think they need they also need a forward who can break the lines. So Mo Salah, um, you know, if you watch uh, Klopp's press conference um, after the Chelsea game, um, he actually talks about Salah not scoring in the, in the previous two games because he didn't have space. So he kind of gives the game away there that Salah, for all the brilliance of his seasons, for all the goals he scored, he, he struggles um, when he doesn't have space to run into. And he can occasionally score um, you know, goals from outside the box into the top corner, but he's not good at, at, um, at dribbling through a packed defence. And, and they've really lacked that since they let Philippe Coutinho go. He was the guy who could break those situations, who, who quite often or certainly more often than any of the players they've got, was able to score from outside the box, um, but could also break, you know, pick the lock of a defence. Um, you know, Juan Mata type, I, I wouldn't recommend Juan Mata to, to Liverpool because he's, he doesn't have the physical attributes to play in their standard system. But they need a player, for me, in addition to that different type of centre-forward, they need a player, for me, who can break a packed defence with skill um, as opposed to three forwards they've got who all want to run onto the ball, run into space. That's, that's, what they, that's what they're really good at. That's what they're deadly when you give them the opportunity to do. But if you, if you put people in front of them and block their path, they don't score very often. If I were to, uh, to pick two players that would... would really make Liverpool uh, champion, uh, Premier League contenders, I'd say Christian Eriksen and Sergio Aguero, which it's easy to say that, obviously much harder to buy those players, but Eriksen's a game-breaker. He's also set-piece specialist since Coutinho left. Liverpool have lacked someone who can actually make goals out of set-pieces. Uh, the delivery's not there anymore, and there's certainly the direct threat from a shot, uh, a free kick within 30 metres is not there either. Eriksen, as we've seen this season, last season, is very adept at, um, when there is a, a block defence, picking the pass, which allows one of 
these strikers, it be it Dele Alli, Harry Kane or Son, to move on to that pass without running with the ball at their feet. So it's it's basically a two-point move, pass from Ericsson, one or two touch or just straightforward goal from striker. Now, I'd say Aguero would be an interesting one if Liverpool were interested because he's a striker that could play, play between the lines that Duncan said they need. Um, I don't think that, despite his you know, record goal scoring um, still in Manchester, I still don't think that um, he's Pep Guardiola's first choice for next season. Um, whether or not he'd consider a move to Liverpool, I don't know. But interesting in the last few days to see Liverpool linked with um, Naby Fekir uh, and Christian Pulisic um, because they would be players who would augment what they've already got and potentially provide a different kind of strategy um, when Liverpool Liverpool run out of ideas playing Plan A. Um, I think Naby Keita will make a difference as well because he can play box-to-box and he can probably take defenders away from players like Salah, Mane and Firmino um, by running at them or even just passing through them uh, and then therefore make space in behind. But I agree with Duncan. I think it's odd that Klopp for all, you know, he's a, he's a claim to tactical genius, hasn't worked this one out yet and certainly hasn't actioned to buy the players that they need in order to make a difference. I think, um, yeah, Pulisic, you're absolutely right. There's a long-standing interest in Pulisic. Um, uh, a lot of it motivated by him being an American superstar. Um, yeah. Uh, the commercial value involved with that and uh, the owners of Liverpool have wanted a a top-grade American player in that team for a long time. Um, and, yeah, Pulisic, Pulisic was also promoted to um, Borussia Dortmund's first-team squad by Klopp. So there's a, you know, there's a, a direct link between the, the coach and the player there. Um, he's, he's a player who's interesting a lot of top Premier League clubs and he won't be cheap to get out of Dortmund. Um, when I last asked, I think that the, where they were talking about an asking price of about 70 million euros for him, which has probably gone up since then. Also agree with you, Christian Eriksen would be perfect. Um, uh, but then I think Christian Eriksen would fit in easily into any Premier League team at the moment. I think he's an exceptional talent and, and it, the range of, of his midfield play, his creativity is, is, is incomparable almost. You know, you've got Kevin De Bruyne, who would be on a different level from him. Um, I think he's probably getting to the same sort of level as David Silva these days. Um, so uh, if Liverpool were to try for Ericsson, I think they would find a lot of competition from uh, clubs with more money and, and were Daniel Levy to countenance um, a sale to another Premier League team. I think Real Madrid, going back to Florentino, have also got an eye on Ericsson uh, as a long-term replacement for Luka Modric. Uh, and of course, the... Uh, Let's just say the account details are well known between Tottenham and Real Madrid with regards to transferring <laughs> money as well as players. Uh, Luka Modric being an example, never mind Gareth Bale. So um, I think if Ericsson goes anywhere this summer, and I do think he's he's got a little eye on it. I think he thinks that you know he's done a bit of an apprenticeship, having moved um, up into the Premier League and proven himself uh, to go to Madrid. I, I can see that happening this summer. I, I can't. Oh, he's not. He's owed a new contract, isn't he? He's absolutely underpaid for for his quality for a, um, a top. Well, he's a top Champions League player now, isn't he? As opposed to just a top Premier League player. Just looking ahead, guys, and I know we'll go into this in a lot more detail in coming episodes. But where are we at with regards to this enormous game? Real Madrid going for an unprecedented third European Cup in a row. Ian, do you think Liverpool can stop Madrid? Um, 
can Liverpool stop Madrid? Can Madrid stop Liverpool? Um, that's tactically, is Zidane brave enough to do what Dunk has already set out as the way to upset Liverpool in terms of the pattern of play? And when I say is he is he brave enough? Is is Zidane brave enough to to effectively um, renege on the great Madrid tradition of attacking football, swashbuckling style, blah blah blah? Uh, and playing the, the trident of three attacking players um, in that system in order to give themselves the best opportunity of, of creating goals and, and scoring goals? Um, or does he become suddenly a pragmatic coach in the much more kind of, uh, let's just say, perceived ugly um, image of Jose Mourinho and say, I've watched the videos, I know how to stop them. Uh, so to win my, you know, win the club's third European Cup in a row, I'm just going to play. Um, in a way which I know will upset Liverpool and then Real play on the counter-attack and therefore um, play Liverpool at their own game. That's going to be the most fascinating aspect, I think, of how the teams set up, line up and then play out their game plan. Um, I don't see Klopp doing anything different from what he's done because um, I thought personally he would have changed it at um, Stamford Bridge last Sunday and, and been more pragmatic as well as resting players but instead, he put out effectively what looked to me like his Champions League first eleven, a Champions League final first eleven, and failed. Now, some of those players looked distracted, some of them looked tired mentally or physically uh, at Stamford Bridge. If I'm Klopp, I'm very worried about that. Despite the fact I've got you know two weeks, almost three weeks to to sort it out, but I, I'd be worried about that. I think Liverpool are, are hitting a bit of a wall right now. And the some players are already distracted by a Champions League final. They know it's effectively, you know, could be the you know, most glorious moment of their career so far. And and also the Premier League um, top four. Well, it's not safe, but they played Brighton on the last day, and Brighton already safe. So uh, they already beat Brighton. Brighton's heaviest defeat this season came against Liverpool at the Amex um, uh, when they won four one. So I, I don't think Klopp's too worried about making top four. Um, and therefore, he he will, I believe, just play Liverpool at high tempo that he always has done. He will ask them to do that, uh, but he has to beforehand regenerate energy in some of those players, if not all of them, in order to do that. Therefore, it's up then up to, I think, Zidane to make a decision about how he plays. I suspect what we'll get is two teams going at each other's throats, in which case it could be an absolute goal fest. And one, of, and one of the most intending finals that we, we might, might ever see. Yeah, I've no doubt that Liverpool can win the final. Um, if they get the first goal in the game, um, they've got a real chance because then Madrid <laughs> will have to come to them. Um, or particularly if Liverpool get the first goal late in the game and, and Madrid are then forced right on the front foot, you can see then Liverpool taking another goal on a, on a counter-attack and that being enough to, to win the match. Um, I, th I disagree with Ian in, in terms of Jurgen uh, being Jurgen Klopp being comfortable about Champions League qualification. I think it's a major concern for him, um, and you've seen that in, in his reaction to the recent series of, of uh, bad results they've had in the league. Um, ironically, can, can I just sorry, Duncan? I just you've not been to some of the parties I've been to in the last couple of days, so I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well. <laughs> There's a difference between the, the, your inside information of where, uh, of where Brighton are for that final game. Jurgen Klopp's concerns going into the game. 
But it, the, I was just going to say the irony is that the the man who's made, probably made it easiest for them, or the or the team that's made it easiest for them, is Manchester United with their performance at Brighton um, on Friday night. Because if if Manchester United had got a result in that game as they should have, if they'd been focused um, anywhere near the intensity with which Brighton had played, then Liverpool would have a serious uh, final match in their hands with. Uh, or could have had a serious final match in their hands with with uh, with Brighton if they if Brighton had needed to get a point or more out of that game. Um, just one one sort of final thing we should say about um, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. For all we're talking about Liverpool as being a cup team, Jurgen Klopp's record in cup finals is actually really poor. Mm. Um, he's I think been to six major cup finals and hasn't won one since his first, which was in two thousand and twelve. Um, so lost Champions League final, two German Cups, a League Cup and a Europa League. So um, something needs but, to change. But, but Duncan, we all know that there is no law of probability in football. Like, same as tossing a coin, you know, there's no, nothing to say that the next Cup final won't be the one he wins. Um, no, it's, it's not a probability thing, but I, I think you contrast Jose Mourinho's record in Cup finals... Um, to Jurgen Klopp's record in cup finals and then ask what's the difference between those two and it's essentially what you said, Jurgen Klopp will play the same way every time Ian Duncan's uh, Duncan's, uh, remembering Jim McLean's days so he's a natural pessimist of course (laughs) 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 How many was it? Seven? Seven they they, Dundee United lost in a row? I forget the actual numbers (laughs) I forget having attended many of them (laughs) Yeah, he's he's in denial. It's not just a big river in Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, at that, that, we will move across to the other side of Merseyside. Um, Does that even make sense? I'm just going to carry on regardless. Um, To Everton, uh, Sam Allardyce, under a wee bit of pressure. Does he have the backing? And also, Wayne Rooney, is he a man that is... Looking to move on for a second summer in a row? Um, I, I, when a club sends supporters, a, a, you know, this now infamous um, questionnaire asking if they're satisfied with Sam Aldis's performance, as a manager, I think you know that the writing's on the wall. Um, it seems to me that Allardyce, in terms of his performance at Everton with regards to games won, points um, gathered and, you know, where they finished in the league would at most other clubs guarantee him another season at least um, at the club. However, clearly um, what's happened is that the the new owner, the new investor um, believed that Koeman clearly wasn't doing the job that was needed. Um, they tried very hard, as we know, uh, for Marco Silva uh, and, and, and two others. And Allardyce was you know, a very poor fourth choice. In fact, it was even the case that Allardyce was considered and then not offered the job before he was then offered the job. So Allardyce himself must have felt he'd run a bit of a sticky wicket here. Um, go back to the questionnaire. For me, that's just a poor um, ploy by the club to pass the blame um, away from themselves for Allardyce being sacked. They will say it's what supporters wanted and we listen to our supporters. Now, it's my opinion that if you ask supporters for their opinion on it's where a man should stay or not, then you as well just close the club down there and then because it just gives you know incredible power um, to people who don't understand how football actually works. I'm not decrying or even being disrespectful to football fans. 
Um, they are the lifeblood of the sport, and if they didn't turn up, then we would be shutting every club down. But the fact of the matter is, where does that end? Do you, do you then do a survey and ask the supporters who should play in every team selection? Do you ask them who should be on the bench? Do you ask them uh, what their you know prediction is going to be for the league place? And if it's not high enough or it's not good enough, then do you change the entire squad? It's ridiculous. It's an ad infinitum, ludicrous notion that fans should be allowed to have a say in such a, like the most key appointment of any football club. So um, I think Allardyce is doomed. I think he knows he's doomed. I think he's saying all the right things in order to make sure he gets as much of a payout as he can. And as we know with Allardyce and as we know with the Premier League, he'll roll on to another job. He will. You know, he said he was retiring after he left Crystal Palace. And in fact, everyone had to pay back the bonus that Allardyce got for keeping Palace up just to get him. So not just employing Allardyce was expensive, but they also had to pay back something of £2 million to Palace because Allardyce wasn't prepared to give that up because he'd signed a, a, an agreement with Palace that he wouldn't uh, join another Premier League club within 12 months. And he said, I'm retiring, I'm going to spend time with my family. Next thing you know, first decent job that comes up, he's, he's employing himself. And that will happen again because that's what happens. I don't think it's correct. I think we should be giving younger coaches more of a chance, but that is what will happen. Now, who comes in at Everton? Well, Cesar Conceição at Porto has been linked again. Uh, Marco Silva's still out of a job, and they were—they were that was their first choice. Uh, but to me, there's no doubt that Allardyce and Everton will part ways uh, after the end of the season. Well, to go back to your link, Johnny, denial doesn't run into the Mersey, but um, there's often <laughs> a lot, there's often a lot of denial around the Mersey. Um, I think Everton's situation from I've, I've actually been asking quite a lot of questions about what's going on at Everton and. Um, uh, whether they have already decided to replace Allardyce over the over the past couple of weeks, um, Marco Silva has definitely been um, approached by uh, people representing the club uh, or an element of the club um, to assess his interest in becoming their manager next season. I'm told there is, from the Everton side, there is no deal. <laughs> He hasn't been given the job, and also they insist there's no pre-contract with Marco Silva. From Marco Silva's side, he seems to think that that job is his if he wants it, um, and has been excluding himself from the candidacy of other other positions that have come up in the last few months. For example, Southampton, um, West Ham have had a period in which they were scouting around for managers, and he seems to have excluded himself for that as well. Um, so that's definitely a live possibility, um, and it you know make obviously makes perfect sense because they were prepared to to hire him um, through the season and pay a large amount of money to Watford to hire him. Um, what I'm told is no final decision has been made because the ownership is still split there. Um, the the uh, Farhad Mashiri fronted um, consortium that bought into the club. Um, before the, the, the big spending of, of last summer, does not have majority control yet. Um, they have an option to become majority owners, but that option hasn't been activated. And until it has, um, I'm told uh, nothing will be actioned in terms of uh, a plan for next season, a definite plan for next season, which is why there's so much noise around this club of um, potential candidates for manager, potential transfer plans, whether Allardyce stays or not. 
Um, whether the sports director stays, a new chief executive is definitely coming in. Um, they might be changing their scouting structure. Essentially, the whole thing is up in the air. Um, and it's, uh, it's kind of a, a frightening situation for Everton fans in the sense that they've, they've had one summer which was supposed to propel them back into contention, um, at least for Europa League places, um, at least to try and get them in amongst the big six as, as one of the, the you know, top clubs in the Premier League. Um, definitely not to have a, a end up with a season where they, they were worried about relegation and, and had to turn to Sam Allardyce as, as manager for a period. Um, and it's, you know, it's been noted to me that Everton spent more money on transfer fees gross than Manchester United did in the last window. <coughs> but their squad is, is, um, is still a basket case, you know, a Frankenstein squad in many ways. And, and, Understandably so, when you're buying players like Morgan Schneiderlin, um, Wayne Rooney, who uh, Jose Mourinho spent a long time actively trying to get out of his club, um, you buy them and end up starting them as your midfield against Manchester City um, down the line. And, and now we're going into this summer and we're talking about Wayne Rooney potentially going, um, being shifted out by Everton, which tells you that Everton should never have bought a player like Wayne Rooney in the first place for all the uh, the glamour and the emotional um, attraction of it. Um, the, uh, to, to take Wayne Rooney and put him in the middle of a Premier League midfield these days is pretty much a suicidal move from a football point of view. So they have a lot to sort out. There's some big decisions to be made there. And until those big decisions are made, I don't think they're going to have a coherent strategy for the coming season. Um, and it's quite possible that they will just drift along um, as a mid-table club until um, the ownership is the ownership issue is resolved and uh, a proper spending recruitment management plan is designed. Um, for coming seasons, and there's no guarantee that will be this coming season. It might be the season after before that happens. That's what I'm told. I think, um, in amongst those other players at Morgan United, and David Klassen has been an absolute enigma. You know, spent I think around 18, 19 million pounds on the Ajax midfielder, and uh, he's barely barely played a game. Um, Shank Tosin as well, who came in in January. We assume Allardyce is. Um, he approved that move. Again, he scored, I think, four goals, but it's a long way to go to proving himself uh, being a you know Premier League striker who can take Everton forward. In terms of Rooney, there's never any smoke without fire with regards to former England captain. Um, Everton unfortunate position in that Rooney's transfer to Everton was financially linked to Romelu Lukaku's move to Manchester United. So um, my understanding is that Everton aren't even responsible for the majority of his salary that Manchester United uh, allowed Rooney to leave um, on a free transfer to, to begin with when his market value was arguably around 20, 25 million pounds. So um, they saved on that and that was indemnified by the Lukaku fee, but also that because Rooney was on around 250,000 gross a week at Manchester United, a salary which Everton cannot afford and would not pay, that it's subsidised by Manchester United up to a point. Now, 
That was to avoid, in Manchester United's case, them paying a, really around £23 million payoff that would be equal to the two years left on his contract um, when they got rid of him to Everton. So the, the reason that it's not a big deal for Everton to lose Rooney, as well as it's not a big deal for Rooney to leave, is that Manchester United are still responsible to, for that payoff. So Manchester United will either continue to pay or at, at least um, compensate Rooney's next club to the effect of his salary at United, or they will need to um, negotiate what effectively was a redundancy payment to Wayne Rooney, even though he's not played for them for a year, which would see Rooney pocket around, you'd have to say, 13, 14, maybe up to 15 million pounds to move on to a MLS club, which would then only afford to pay him around 100, I say only obviously in realistic terms, 100, 120,000 a week. Poor guy, um, how will he live on that? It, it's difficult these days, you know. I mean, you know, footballers today, how do they get by? Uh, it's difficult enough trying to buy a ripe avocado, you know, in in, the, in Liverpool these days. But that's uh, the most Brighton thing I've heard, Ian. I have to say, uh, yeah, indeed, indeed. And remember, it's a ripe avocado. None of this, uh, you know, ones you have to put in a drawer for two weeks either, Johnny. Uh, you have to has to be able to eat it that night. So, um, so really, may well be eating his avocados somewhere in America, um, if that's indeed his tipple these days. Um, but remember, the America, the MLS season is uh, not even halfway through yet. Um, and so really moving there would re- require him to, to play on for another four months up to October, November, depending on who he joined and if they made the playoffs. Uh, and then he would get sort of four months off. So really may or may not fancy that. Uh, he may decide just to wait and, and join next February. But as I said, Rooney leaving Everton is no big deal for either party because Rooney will still be uh, reimbursed. Uh, to the amount of money that he was owed by Manchester United and Everton themselves will not be losing a huge value asset either. Okay, guys, I'm going to move us on to the quickfire round because, as usual, we are running over time. Uh, What we're going to look at today is managers and who would be an ideal boss for a number of clubs I'm going to give you. Now, some of these clubs still will have a manager in place, so there will be a number of... uh, pieces that would have to fall into place for some of them to to require a manager, but we're looking for the ideal boss nonetheless. So I'm going to start with you, Duncan, and I'm going to say PSG. Um, Paris Saint-Germain have, have made the decision. Um, Thomas Tuchel has been offered that job and accepted it. Two-year contract, I'm told. Um, definitely not the ideal uh, boss for Paris Saint-Germain. Um, I think they're making... Huge mistake there. Um, I think uh, the ideal manager for them is a guy that they've they've offered the job two, three times before, and that's Jose Mourinho. Ian, Napoli. Yeah, I think Antonio Conte um, is uh, on the radar at Napoli, and I think would be a good fit. Uh, he's got that um, passionate and uh, confrontational side to his character and his coaching which they appreciate um, in those environs uh, obviously did a great job with Juventus and Napoli will lose Sarri I believe this summer I think there's um, a bit of an impasse between him and the chairman there's a fear on Sarri's part that he'll lose some of his, his top players who've performed outstandingly this season in taking uh, the grand old lady to, to the wire in terms of the Scudetto so um, but Conte will only go there if he's got, um, obviously, some guarantees with regards to not selling 
uh, those players are at least not selling all of them so that you can challenge Conte is not someone who, who likes losing uh, football matches never mind titles uh, despite the way they've thrown it away at Chelsea this season but um, so I'd say Conte would be ideal for, for Napoli Real Madrid um, I don't think Mauricio Pochettino is the ideal candidate for them uh, even though uh, he has a lot of contacts with Florentino Perez and in his mind has been um, invited to take that job on. Um, on the current market, the ideal manager for uh, Real Madrid. be interesting if they could get someone like Pep Guardiola there. And, uh, <laughs> or like his, with his assistant Luis Enrique. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That would be an entertaining uh, Spanish league season, given current political circumstances. <laughs> okay, Ian, and given that this is a hypothetical, mm-hmm. think about the, the building blocks of this falling into place. So the next one is Spurs. I thought you were going to say Arsenal, given that they actually are replacing their manager. <laughs> I was going to get first shot at that I one. was thinking Real Madrid might, you know, lead into Spurs. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, Marco Silva, I think, is someone who has been earmarked by Daniel Levy as, a, as someone who fits into Pochettino's um, football philosophy. His, uh, uh would be good at progressing younger players, um, introducing them into the team and making them first team regulars, etc., etc. Um, I think Duncan's correct in the earlier part of the podcast that Silva will probably go to Everton. That doesn't mean to say that Spurs would be his next stop. Uh, so I would say with Spurs... Listen, if, if we're talking, you know, and you've given me licence to talk in... Uh, you know, the ideal, the heavenly appointment, I would say that actually Luis Enrique would be the best man for that job because he has, again, the right mentality, the right philosophy of football and also the winning mentality, which Spurs desperately need to take them to the next level. So if I was Levy and I'm selling um, uh, one of Kane, Delhi, or Christian Eriksen, they're all three to Real Madrid this season, then I would say to Luis Enrique, I'll give you the 15 million net you want to come here and be manager and shove Poch off the, off the bridge to Real. Everton. Everton, I, I, th- I think I've got, um, in, this, in lining up Marco Silva earlier in the season, I think they made a very good choice. And I think whoever gets Marco Silva and can give him the framework on which to work, i.e. a proper budget and proper organisation, um, allow him to change the squad, is going to have a very good Premier League manager. So given, given where Everton are and what, what it's possible for them to attain as a manager at the moment, I think Marcus Silva is a good shout for them. Ian, you've been fairly consistent throughout the entire last six months that Chelsea are going to go for Carlo Ancelotti. You're not going to change your mind now, are you? No, I'm not. <clears throat> I believe that Ancelotti's hand has been strengthened uh, in recent weeks. Um, Luis Enrique has certainly met with um, Arsenal representatives about going there. There's not, there's been no contract offer yet, um, and their interest is in Maurizio Sarri from Napoli uh, on the basis of um, should uh, sorry, this is Chelsea, this is not Arsenal. Um, should the um, decide not to go with Angelotti. So I think there's a, a, a... At the moment, Chelsea's biggest problem is that, that Antonio Conte is not going quietly. He wants to pay off. He doesn't want to be paid his, his weekly salary, which is what Chelsea 
have stipulated that that's what they will do. They'll pay salary until he finds another job. And so there's an impasse between Conte and Chelsea with regards to he wants a payoff which will um, indemnify the two-year year left in his contract. So he wants the full year. Uh, Chelsea's saying, no, we'll pay your weekly wage. And so at the moment, there's a bit of a standoff with, with regards to that. And that's stopping Chelsea from actually signing a pre-contract with another manager who's clearly under employment law. That would be illegal. If, if that weren't the case, I believe Ancelotti would already have a contract with Chelsea. I don't think that Roman Abramovich wants to go into the unknown again. I think he does want to return to Ancelotti. Um, I do think it'll be a shorter contract this time, maybe two years. And I do think that at this moment in time, Ancelotti is the ideal candidate for Chelsea because they're a club which is, you know, in a bit of a, not say crisis, but they're certainly, you know, FA Cup is not going to be enough for them. Um, they're still struggling to make top four for Champions League. They need someone to, to resurrect them, to, to give them uh, confidence back. And Ancelotti's man management skills are perfect for that. And as long as he doesn't lose the likes of Hazard, um, then I think he'd be able to do a good job in terms of building a team um, to challenge for the Premier League next season. And finally, I'm going to give you both an opportunity on Arsenal because obviously it is the big job. We know it's up. Um, so, Duncan, first of all, who's your pick? Who's the ideal candidate for the Gunners? Okay, you've asked Ian about Tottenham and Chelsea um, and you know, got Arsenal as well. There's three top Premier League jobs available or potentially available this summer. Two for sure, one perhaps. For me, the best candidate for any of those jobs is a guy who we mentioned last week, and that's uh, Rui Faria. I think in this current market, there is a, there's a real lack of top-class managers, and that's why we're seeing um, a lot of big clubs looking for managers and not many taking a final decision because they're, they have an uncertainty who the best candidate for the job is. And I think this is a sort of period where you go for someone who's under the radar who has all the skills to to be a top um, Champions League manager, who's won the Champions League twice as uh, essentially a co-manager to Jose Mourinho, won titles um, in every country he's worked in. Um, he's, he has the skill set. That's the guy I would recommend to any of those clubs, um, particularly Arsenal, who've probably got the biggest um, rebuilding job on their hands of those three. Ian? Uh, I think it'd be a, a slight risk that Arsenal wouldn't take because Rui's never coached, um, you know, on, as a, as, his, as his own man, as it were. Uh, I, I do regard his his credentials as very, very high, and I, you know, it's clearly the case that he wants to make that leap. But um, the ideal for me for Arsenal, and again, people won't agree with me, but I think Brendan Rodgers. I've, I've said it many times uh, on the podcast. Uh, I believe that. He, he has it in him to have a proper go at a big club, having left Liverpool the way he did, and that his philosophy of football, his style of football, um, his man management and the detail uh, that he shows in his everyday work, um, as well as the fact he's a young manager and he's a British manager, which is something I know for a fact that Josh Kronka, Stan Kronka's son, is keen on um, potentially... Uh, revitalising at um, Arsenal Football Club after 22 years of, uh, of French influence. So I would say Brendan, um, I'm sure Celtic fans won't thank me for that, but as I said, I, I, Brendan's an ambitious man who sees his future uh, back in the Premier League and I think Arsenal would be perfect. OK, I'm going to bring this particular transfer window to a close. To continue the debate, you can find us all on Twitter. 
I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Duncan is at Duncan Castles. And Ian is at Garbo SJ. To get the pod as soon as it becomes available, please subscribe at iTunes or our new provider, Acast. We'll be back next Tuesday before 3pm and it will definitely be Tuesday next week. Hopefully we won't have the same technical issues that have dogged us this week. So until then, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.